God damn the extraordinary. God damn all that toil. God damn the performing arts. God damn genius. God damn suicide. God damn all that jazz. God damn Robin Williams. Death by asphyxiation. Nasty death. A hanging. Some horse thieving. Cattle rustling in his past. Wild West justice served. The Oxbow incident. Maybe. Not from a tree this time. From a belt. A goddamn belt. Did he carve out a fresh hole to narrow that loop? A leather strap designed to hold pants up? Or maybe inflict some old school justice? A whipping? A reckoning? Some comeuppance? A lesson learned? What the hell did he do so wrong? Some bitchin' notchin' that belt, I'll say that. There's always a posse to prosecute matters. The oxymoronic posse. Fawners and chastisers. Chasers and followers. We the public. The onlookers. The rubbernecks. The sycophants. The jury. The frenzy. The rush to judgment. Emotion. Plenty of that. And then the hanging. A manly way to do it. We stood witness. Bob Fosse famously noted that the time to sing is when your emotional level is too high to speak. And the time to dance is when your emotions are just too strong to only sing about. And then there is what Robin Williams does. Not a song and dance man, not exactly. Fosse made all that jazz in 1979. The capable Roy Scheider standing in for Bob. Wonderful film, not magical. Magical would be Cabaret with Liza Minnelli, Joel Gray, and others out front. Fosse would snatch the best director Oscar right out of Francis Ford Coppola's deft grip for his masterwork, The Godfather. Wow. Fosse made all of five motion pictures, three drenched in Oscar nominations. A singular choreographer, though a dancer, a screenwriter, and so much more. Could the pedestrian Scheider fill those shoes? A proxy for Bob? A faux Fosse? I think not heartily. Might a 28-year-old rising comedic star just beginning to flesh out his range of talent been able to carry this role home and back to the bank? Are you kidding? If we might have known then. Robin Williams was being groomed by the iconoclast Robert Altman to play the clueless Popeye. How could he be suited to play the hyper-clued-in Fosse? Welcome to Robin Williams' world. Some actors transmit texture, depth. Their physical expressiveness, their facial lines communicate more than their delivered lines. And then the voice. They are soulful, not bland. They have a subtext, and that would be the entirety of their character. We sense it. We see it. We feel it. They shoulder their share and more of the narrative. We treasure the experience of watching these artists at work. Russell Crowe is one. Christian Bale is not. 
The early Robert Downey Jr. is one, the later is not. When the otherworldly Robin Williams stepped into the role as T.S. Garp or Vladimir Ivanov, we immediately saw it, felt it. When he taught us Keats as John Keating, we got it. Robin Williams is one. Death by hanging, a suicide, shit. More common than homicide by a third, though the distinction between the two might not be so meaningful. His suicide has been linked to Lewy body dementia. Maybe so. But let's not for a second dismiss the passing of Robin Williams in purely clinical terms. Helpful, not complete. When I worked almost exclusively with suicidal patients, I reached what I felt was a meaningful conclusion about these guys and specifically about suicide. I contended that the act of suicide was a psychotic act, on par with such travesties as burning money or attacking someone who is asleep. Problem here, if suicide is a psychotic move, by definition it lacks meaning or reason, at least reasonable meaning or meaningful reason. In many or most instances, I, I can accept this. With Robin Williams, I cannot just can't. He is much too special, too rare. Meaning must be mined here, somehow. Deconstructing Robin Williams is problematic. I couldn't dream up a nickname for him, and I wouldn't want to try. The master of the extemporaneous, the undisputed king of the impromptu, does not lend, him, does not lend himself one wit to an offhand reference or a throwaway line. Robin Williams is Robin Williams. He might occasionally be referred to by one of his roles or movies. He is Mork or the Fisher King. I feel awkward and wrong for referring to him with simply the familiar Robin or the more impersonal Williams. Generalized hypoxia. The inability to acquire sufficient oxygen. This was not a panic attack and it wasn't asthma. For the tastelessly waggish, the answer is no. This was not an instance of erotic asphyxiation gone wrong. Though even money says that in an alternate universe, Robin Williams is riffing on that very theme. This was a hanging, an intensely private public event. Richard Pryor damn near succumbed to immolation, then lived to joke about it on stage. Drugs were certainly a factor. Robin Williams was purportedly clean and sober at his time, and for this I'm grateful, if such an emotion could be remotely linked to this tragedy. The act was deliberate, had to have meaning. It could not be chalked up to the usual fog of chemicals. Robin Williams and Bob Fosse, two gangsters from Chicago. Their talents did not so much overlap as complement each other, spanning nearly the entire breadth and width of the performing arts. Both speed freaks, hell, both freaks, in perpetual motion, incapable of stopping, timeless. Robin Williams was 20 years younger than the Roy Scheider who, who served up his take on Fosse. Could the 28-year-old version of Robin Williams play an aging, ageless Bob Fosse? Are you kidding me? 
The 28-year-old version of Robin Williams was Bob Fosse. If the 45-year-old Brad Pitt could spin time back and forth playing the senescent to toddler Benjamin Buttons, Robin Williams could have turned that clock forwards and played Fosse. All that jazz with Robin Williams would have been magic and would have kicked Kramer versus Kramer's ass at the Oscars. In my field, there's a, there is a term that retains ultimate cachet and significance. It is the gold standard. It is the very reason why clinical psychology exists. Without this term, the field would struggle to separate itself from astrology in addressing matters of personality. After all, we are so very special, every last one of us. We are unique, we are individuals, and yet somehow all the same. Be ye Capricorn or Cancer. We draw inspiration and sustenance from these astrological bylines. We all carefully adhere to our own value system while being open to some refreshing input from an attractive stranger. But one term and concept manages to clarify and define the limits of what is ordinary, what is normal, and what is not. That would be psychosis. Ah, yes, psychosis. Without it, the whole notion of abnormal behavior would be cast in doubt. Without it, all manner of deviant behavior would amount to 50 shades of ordinary gray. Psychosis. A line is drawn between those who remain in touch with reality and those who do not. Step over that line and you are in the land of psychosis. This land is qualitatively different. The usual rules are suspended. Sense is not sense. Delusions and hallucinations are hallmarks here. Reality as we know it has become unhinged. Schizophrenics often live here. Meds sometimes offering a partial respite, but rarely a complete prophylactic to the ravages of a psychosis. Old school classic bipolars visit from time to time, more often for briefer periods. Now, why is the concept of psychosis pertinent? Because it offers a clear instance of exceptionalism. These are behaviors that are the exception to what convention deems normalcy. This is psychosis. How is the, deter the determination of a psychosis reliably and valid validly achieved? Sometimes not easily particularly in this day and age when the boundary between the ordinary and the exceptional is so often blurred. Psychological testing can be useful in this regard. I submit that there is one issue for which psychological testing is the most effective means for detecting the truth. That would be in determining the presence of a psychosis. A psychosis, like much in the realm of human behavior, can be a tricky bastard to chronicle. The interplay of the information derived from the Wexler, the Rorschach, and the MMPI, the once in future pillars of psychological testing, in the hands of an able cl clinician can yield a definitive, discerning call regarding the presence of a psychosis. Without these instruments, the call can be largely a clinical hunch or intuition in the field of, of the per performing arts, a similarly defining term exists, 
that is also the gold standard, the difference maker, the raison d'etre for the field of aesthetics itself. That would be our ever-present, elusive little friend, genius. Yes, genius. We are all that, aren't we? Others just haven't figured it out. Lord knows our children are all gifted. Our kid is definitely gifted. But does gifted mean genius? Eh, not quite. Gifted comes into the conversation somewhere around the number 140 on the Wexler. Traditionally, ge genius would imply the stratosphere of 180 or higher. Know this, the psychometric properties of the Wexler do not allow for an intelligence quotient climbing that high. Our elegantly egalitarian Wexler could not render the appellation genius onto our genius. Need the Stanford Binet for that dirty work. With the Wexler, virtually everyone clocks in within an 80-point range surrounding the 100 mark. Wherefore art thou, genius? Alas, genius is not necessarily a number, certainly not in the realm of the performing arts. The folks at Rotten Tomatoes and similar rating agencies might beg to differ. We all love our movies, our fiction, our plays, our dance, our music. Aren't we all experts? Does not our opinion matter? The rise of the internet and the proliferation of social media, blogging, etc., has lowered the bar considerably on what passes for credible observations in matters of art, be they casual or critical in nature. As with most things involving human endeavor, attention is a key factor. Be it buying a ticket, checking out a book, or downloading music or a movie, our artists need us to pay attention. How does the old saying go? 90% of genius is just showing up? It is true. Our performing artists need us to show up. But it is attention enough, particularly in the matter of genius? Stephen King and Joyce Carol Oates are both spectacularly prolific authors. Both can be dark and edgy both eminently entertaining. One has had a record number of his stories turned into major motion pictures. He has published fiction under a pseudonym in order to spread the wealth. The other is a genius. How is that? What is the litmus test? Is there a litmus test? Can psychological testing discern genius? Let me respond quickly on that one. A big fat no. Breathless. Robin Williams is breathless. Robin Williams was breathless. He sweated profusely during his live concerts, but that was not the half of it when it comes to his biorhythms. He might have had 20 bottles of water on that stool, but he might as well have had an oxygen tank too. He just didn't seem to come up for air often enough. His shtick was frenetic as a rule and more. It was kinetic. Robin Williams was all about pace and movement. And we speak here of his thinking. His thoughts may not have raced, a clinical observation, though they seemed to. He was thinking, as we all are, but surely at a more rapid pace.
Robin Williams was also watching us and thinking along with us, monitoring us. It's not that he didn't suffer fools easily. He simply had no truck with him. Don't go blank with this guy. Gotta stay nimble. Try to follow. Try to stay with him. He notices. He is bothering to stay with us. Dopes and halfwits, stay the hell away. He is thinking with us, but he, but he is also three or four paces in front, racing ahead, then doubling back to see if we are keeping up. The velocity of his thinking, his rapid-fire delivery, was dizzying, breathtaking. It surely could dissolve into the absurd, the nonsensical, maybe the psychotic. He was thinking with us, thinking for himself, and for the three or four other characters he brought to the table. That is one bitchin' amount of thinking. Robin Williams remained coherent, carried it off at breakneck speed, stayed in touch, breathless, he, we. Penny Marshall cast Robin Williams as neurologist Oliver Sacks in Awakening, opposite the encephalitic lethargic played by Robert De Niro. Who do you think did the heavy, the acting heavy lifting here? The Academy favored De Niro with a Best Actor nod. The film critics and the Golden Globes went with Robin Williams. At first blush, this may have seemed counterintuitive. The classic old guard De Niro played the patient, and newbie Robin Williams played the doc. Both unquestioningly geniuses of the performing arts. On anyone's short list. But let's break this down. Who among these two has the higher IQ? With all due respect, I'm thinking Robin Williams. So, which one gets the nod as the innovator, the thinker, who critically connected the dots with the L-Dopa and revised the, revived those poor comatose souls? Let's put it this way. In that dream, where you underwent brain surgery and looked up into the face of the surgeon... You saw Robin Williams. Had you seen De Niro, it would have been a nightmare. Might Robin Williams been able to answer the call as the catatonic on the psych ward? <laughs> Down to the subtlest tick. We love Robert De Niro like we love Meryl Streep. They are the best. We just might not find their names in the same sentence with the term breathless. I'll share, I'll share an insider's secret regarding suicide, specifically regarding evaluating the lethality of the suicide impulse. Plenty of people have suicidal thoughts, and many present with a suicide risk, and, and a fair number make a suicide attempt, all deadly serious. The observation that he just did it for attention is foolish. Of course it's that. It's why any of us do anything. If suicide in any guise or form is on the landscape, the sound clinical response is to go after it, right on down to those brief lapses of reckless driving, especially those. No, agree, no degree of self-destruction is okay. All is dangerous, none is tolerable. But we might attempt to discern the extraordinary risk factors at work here. What pushes things over the top? Depression is a given, of course. And the old saw about people not doing it when they're at their lowest, but 
being more at risk when the energy starts to come back does ring true clinically. It is likely the reason why the antidepressants get associated with suicide. Getting well can be hell. From my experiences, most especially with psychological testing, I submit that the entity or factor or clinical presence that seems to seal the suicide deal is paranoia. Look for a scale 6 elevation on the MMPI. A first cousin to the term psychosis, but not an interchangeable term. The significant presence of paranoia often seems to be the difference between those who are suicidal and those who successfully suicide, if one dared to construct an oxymoron under these circumstances. Why? How? Paranoia is a state associated with the survival of the species, signaling the presence of danger, counseling caution. It is also a state that clouds the thinking and most crucially cuts one off from that most treasured of human conditions, a trusting closeness to others. It was said that in the months leading up to his death, Robin Williams displayed paranoia. Hmm. When word of his suicide came out, and after we all rapidly cycled through each of Kubler-Ross's five stages of grieving, the clinical wing of his following drew a deep breath and we harumphed. So, Robin Williams was bipolar. This is what bipolar people do. All those years of witnessing his manic or manic-like rants, and we vacillated with our takes. He is either using a lot of cocaine or he is bipolar. At least bipolar, too. If this wasn't mania, it was hypomania for sure. Couldn't simply be Robin Williams, could it? Alas, these narratives never turn out to be simple or straightforward, and no one likes to be pigeonholed. I looked for and did not find mention of bipolar in the accounts of his death. Depression, for sure. But who doesn't have that? Robin Williams was more than a depressive. And cocaine abuse was on his resume, but was it a factor in his creative or clinical presentation? Preliminary reports would not have it so. To my knowledge, neither Bob Fosse nor Robin Williams was a jazz musician, not in a strict sense. Maybe the one area of the performing arts that this duo did not cover. And yet, the one area of the performing arts that metaphorically best captures their essence. All that jazz. All that jazz. Fosse labors maniacally to get the timing down, get the pacing just right, establish the right flow. No, this was not choreography, not this time. This was editing, movie making. All that jazz chronicled the toilsome process of his putting the finishing touches on Lenny, another baby-faced comic genius who could try on and discard multiple personas in a single bit, who also sported a beard to add a touch of character or gravitas, stayed close to the edge, was as restless as a Charlie Parker riff, and would self-destruct. How could you know, Bob Fosse? Lenny Bruce is, was... Might be Robin Williams. And all that jazz was Chicago, musical theater, 
the story of a celebrity criminal. This was Bob Fosse in his element, creative, exacting, bending the rules, expanding the rules, redefining the rules, breaking the rules. This was Bob Fosse, the celebrity criminal, the artistic genius. This was his life, all that jazz. An extended dance sequence, triumphant, and finally his dance with death. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. All step up and have a turn. How could you know that, Bob? You are, you were, you might be, Robin Williams. He would have made all that jazz, all that jazz. Hallucinations have been associated with Louis body dementia. Aha, the psychotic connection. This explains his suicide. Maybe. When I describe suicide as a psychotic act, I'm not referring to the presence of clinical psychotic features. The discussion could go there. It is the case that the rate of suicide among schizophrenics trumps that among bipolars easily. The more stout and sturdy psychosis is more closely associated with suicide. I could use this data to support my contention that suicide is a psychotic act, and I might, but it won't be Exhibit A. My point that suicide is a psychotic act mostly references the fact that it is nonsensical. Losing Robin Williams makes no sense. The presence of, of the paranoia is a crucial and intriguing fe feature here. Know this about paranoia. It is truly a matter of degree. It can be adaptive. It can be maladaptive. It might bend reality a bit, or it might reshape reality. It might approach a psychosis, or it, it might leap right over, over that line into the psychotic realm. Robin Williams reportedly displayed paranoia in the run-up to his suicide. How strong was it? What caused it? Did it reach the level of a psychosis? Clinically, these answers are never easy. He had a history of stimulant abuse, which axiomatically triggers paranoia, and which can be one of the most deceptively challenging categories of substance abuse to monitor or keep under wraps. Best guess is that he did have an unspecified mood disorder, which may have approached the bipolar, a condition that might contain a more significant presence of paranoia than what is generally advertised with such mood disorders. Could garden variety paranoid features be a part of his personality? Don't be stupid, of course. And then there is the matter of the paranoia that accompanies most neurological conditions, particularly a dementia. Well, which is it? Maybe a bit of each? A psychological autopsy is not a particularly scientific operation. This field has long struggled with the challenge of profi profiling the artist, shedding telling light on the landscape of art. Good luck there. Maybe to compensate for perceived insecurities, the field is always trying to deconstruct the artist, artistic genius. The effort is straight out of Adler. The level of success rivals the cure rate for most psychiatric illness. This is not a matter of apples and oranges. Hell, they are both fruit. 
This is literally science at odds with art. Psychology is the softest of sciences and will often take a stab at literary flourish. Our main man, Freud, never strayed far from art with his allusions and illusions. But even with his ingenious tool, psychoanalysis, his and his disciples' efforts to unmask art and the artist fell fabulously flat. Freud was a scientist. He held no quarter with magic. Many have tried to link the ravages of mental illness, the anarchy of psychosis, with the panorama of artistic genius. Van Gogh is the poster child in this regard. Good luck. The argument seems to go this way. Both are exceptional states that seem to overlap, so they must overlap. An LSD trip may simulate a psychosis and may simultaneously appear to offer artistic enlightenment. Uh, maybe it briefly does on an individual basis. Alas, we are social creatures. Nothing is quite as boring as hearing about someone's LSD trip. Mental illness is unexciting, unromantic, and uninspiring. It is not art. A bipolar may briefly entertain, but soon loses her luster and takes more than she gives. The idea of the tortured artist residing on the edge has damn near become an archetype. Fairly? Eh, not clear. First of all, the edge of what? Sanity? I think not. Pain, exceptionalism, and altered states of consciousness have become, have become associated with both the artist and mental illness. But are they crucially linked or merely incidental? I say incidental. Might we consider suicide the coalescence of art and mental illness? An act that generates meaning by expressing the ultimate absurdity of life? The meaninglessness of life? I say a profound, emphatic, and unequivocal hell no. Camus briefly went there and then retracted his words. Provocative words, intended to gain attention, become immortal as art is. Words that died on the vine, like suicide, an absurd act, a psychotic act, one without meaning. Jay Leno, who Robin Williams shortlisted as a major influence on his creative life, and don't for an instant smirk at Jay being brought into this discussion, frequently spoke to this issue. Jay, a performance artist whose ranking among his peers will be better measured with time and reflection, has spoken eloquently about the emotional toll and toil required by his work, but readily pooh-poohs the whole tortured artist thing, insisting that he and his ilk are privileged and pampered. Seems such work does not have to hemorrhage from the artist's wounds. Hmm, or maybe Jay is not edgy enough, not a true performance artist, not someone whose output might be framed by the word genius. Maybe. It has become trendy to take a shot at Jay, and the reasons bear consideration. David Rubenstein, chairman of the Kennedy Center, stepped into these waters as he briefly introduced Jay and gave him his much-deserved Mark Twain Award for humor. All suave, clever, and just a dash smarmy, Rubenstein couldn't resist what has become the predictable jab at Jay. 
Seems he has been too busy to catch all of Jay's work, though he noted that his mom watched him religiously. We get it, Dave. The saccharine Leno is loved by the elderly. Nothing edgy. Yeah, right. Bullshit, I say. Humor is all about material and delivery. Did you catch Jay's ripost? Swift and done without acrimony, but cutting poor Rubenstein off at the knees. Not even sure the poor guy got it. A, a first-rank humorist and speaker, edgy but not showcasing it, putting a third-rate speaker and humorist firmly in his place. Touché, Jay. Wit matters, and it is tangible. The young comic who does his eight minutes rant on Jay, the milk-toast, melon-headed, jaw-jutting, squeaky-voiced Jay, seems like a real buccaneer, a true insurgent, in that dangerously darkly lit club with 20 or so drunk patrons laughing uproariously. Try eight minutes a night for 20 years in front of millions. Could the young Turk hold Jay's jock in a one-on-one -on -one battle of wits? Please. In those moments when Jay and the over-rehearsed Jerry Seinfeld might battle playfully on some extra extemporaneous field, a spontaneous jousting of two world-class wits? Seinfeld could only retreat to a smirk in an effort to cover up or keep up with Jay. The one person who seemed able to corner and outwit Jay was Robin Williams. In The Denial of Death, a book quite popular around the time Fosse made all that jazz, Ernest Becker argued that our reluctance to accept our mortality can be directly linked to a basic discomfort with or denial of our creatureliness. I say, in true psychoanalytic fashion, he shed the necessary light, expanded our understanding, and removed that block. We are all over our creatureliness. As a culture, we've been there and done it over and over. If the book were to be written today, I say that our problem with creatureliness has been replaced with a denial of our ordinariness. No one or nothing is ordinary, nor should it be. Exceptionalism rules. Our children are all gifted, and you if you look carefully enough, nearly each and every one of us reaches criterion on some DSMV diagnosis. The field has created this monster. All psychotherapy now adheres to self-theory. That would be a recognition of the importance of self, carefully examining any and all injury to self, and setting about to heal those nasty wounds. Find yourself. Treasure yourself. Be your best self. Celebrate your specialness. Everyone's a winner. Everyone wins a trophy. No one is a loser. All are esteemed. No one is ordinary. More denial of death? Hmm. What is going on here? We seem unwilling to accept our ordinariness. It seems more than deathly boring. It seems merely deathly. We crave the extraordinary. In our stars, in our artists, in ourselves. Artistic genius does not so much deny death. It defies death. It is immortal. We know this. We want this, some part of this. 
The field may not be able to deconstruct the artist or artistic genius, but maybe we can approximate it, approach it. Be like Mike. If you can't beat him, join him. Eh, Sort of. More like uh, monkey see, monkey do. Exceptionalism transfixes. More and more and more of us are mentally ill. Psychotic? Nah, not so much. More tricky by one and a half is genius. Artistic genius. Whiplash. The snapping of a neck. Death by hanging. Witness Robin Williams. The impact of Robin Williams. Leaving one not so much breathless as snapping that neck back. Painfully humorous. Entertainment at its highest level. A performance artist and artistic genius. Whiplash. Written and directed by by Damien Chazelle. The last 20 minutes feature a sequence so riveting, so affecting. The unveiling of genius. Exceptional. Young Miles Teller, a jazz drummer, breaks out a riff that sizzles, transcends. A star is born. This is magic. This is Robin Williams. Whiplash dares to deconstruct genius, artistic genius. For this, it fails. It cannot be done. J.K. Simmons won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. That one was an easy call. Dude was old school, Vince Lombardi. He will make you or break you. Is that how genius works? The mentorship model? Eh, not entirely. The whole genius is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration is just more pandering to the masses. You too can be extraordinary if you work hard enough. Yeah, maybe. Genius is easily 90% or more inspiration. Not to take a single thing away from the toil. It is often bloody. The whiplash maestro, J.K. Simmons, prods and provokes the young artist. And then, shockingly, unleashes a dramatic testimonial for the ages. He is not a mentor. He is not a conductor. He is a witness. We see him cycle poignantly through each Kubler-Ross phase. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. As he affirms, not the death, but the birth of an artist. Joy sneaks in there, too. Simmons can browbeat brilliance from his jazz orchestra, but he cannot create genius. He can corroborate it. Suicide is meaningfully brought into the mix, but is seen as a casualty of the collaborative process, not a function of the artistic process. It's showtime. The pacing, the tempo, the intensity. Our attention is drawn sharply. We are transfixed. Robin Williams is performing. Bob Fosse never directed Robin Williams and all that jazz, but he might have, and it would have been magic. This is what artists do. This is what these two artists do. The creative process might not always be a collaborative one, but artistic genius does corroborate. Convention and shrewd judgment will see to it. Screw the Kubler-Ross phases of grieving. I remain angry that Robin Williams committed suicide. I blame the field. We suck. 
but we are paying attention, Robin Williams. And when we experience your body of work, joy still sneaks in there.